Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. About time we get Alex back on the show. Last time Alex was on is when we had uh, good old Jordan Sillers from Meat Eater talking to us about corner crossing, which uh, is still being talked about a lot. And I'm glad. I hope it. I hope it keeps getting talked about because maybe then it will finally force some kind of legal decision. It'll uh, get you know a, a legislator to be like, hey, you know what? We need to just create some kind of rule here for how this is going to be handled. And um, I really think that it's more likely if that happens to be in favor of making corner crossing legal because it just makes sense. You know what I mean? Like it's, it follows common sense. And um, I think uh, that the precedent has already been set legally a few times now and um there's also the other law of you cannot like uh block there's another word uh but for lack of that term because i can't think of it you cannot block somebody's access to public land and i think that that's what what it would come down to and it would probably have very specific language like you cannot touch you cannot you know and and they'll probably have to go out and they'll have to survey every corner where this happens. But I think I, I, I think it would be awesome if that law came through and just everyone could have peace of mind. I agree. I agree. And that was a great podcast, by the way. It was it was good to have like the professional scope of it, right? Because yeah, I think he was hyper detailed on everything because he just knew so much about it on yep. the legal end and everything in between. So. Yeah. Yeah. And if uh, people haven't listened yet, definitely tune in. Here's what I would tell you to do. Go and listen to the Jordan Sillers episode first. It's in the 140s. I don't remember the exact number. Um, But the Corner Crossing Pick and Bones episode with Jordan Sillers, listen to that one. Then immediately go and listen to the episode that I think comes right after it, which is with Travis Adair, who uh, is an actual lawyer. Uh, and a uh, big time bear hunter. So I, I interviewed him for bear hunting, but because it was fresh, I was like, "Hey, you're a lawyer. What do you think? How, where do you think this is going to go?" And so uh, he weighs in on it, and uh, it's a great conversation. So go back and check out those two episodes back to back if you haven't yet. Um, and I'm going to bet that there's a fair number of you tuning in that this is your first time tuning in because the title is going to get you. Um, I recently have learned. Uh, the power of search engine optimization. Okay, yes, I've known about it since I started uh, the podcast three years ago, over three years ago. But, um, like, I've seen it play out now. I've seen how I am a victim of search engine optimization, meaning as the consumer, where I, like, Mm -hmm. I run out of podcasts to listen to, and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to type in a topic. Well, if you have generically named or not generically, but just main idea named podcast instead of like creatively named podcast like I used to like to do, uh, you're just more likely to get traffic. So this podcast is going to have something to do with hunting muskox, 
which is weird and crazy. And who knows why anyone would want to do it other than they are really cool. But you got to go way out of your way to go and hunt these critters. And um, so Alex is one of the few people, uh, the only person I know, personally know, that has hunted muskox. And so he's going to tell the story. We've referenced it so many times, Alex, through the three years. Can you believe we've been doing this for three years, by the way? This is technically no. our, our fourth. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is technically like our fourth, I guess you'd say podcasting season maybe. But um, yeah, three years, three calendar years, we've uh, been doing this, man. And you've been there since I think uh, you were like episode 17, 18 or something like that was your first one. And this will be yep. episode... 153 i think so it's kind of crazy yeah makes me feel old it's like a three-year-old baby <laughs> yeah well, well yeah just i mean think of that think of that subtract three years from your current age you know yeah. i'm i'm back to being a spry 30 year old um wow. but it it's uh it's it's a uh, pretty i'm puts, closer to the other <laughs> i know i know I, i'm not gonna make fun of you my coworker nick would make fun of me right now he'd be like oh that put kent back to his early 50s you know but uh yeah, it's so good no it it is uh it's been a good three years buddy i've learned so much from you the best part's been becoming your friend and that would not have happened without the podcast um and uh we say it all the time on here hunting brings people together Hunting is what inspired me to do the podcast. Hunting is what made you want to talk to some random stranger. <laughs> totally. And uh, I welcome it. Yeah, that's right. And it brings people <laughs> together. And uh, Alex is is definitely one of my uh, one of my great friends that I have. And um, it's it's just been a really cool thing. And we've talked about this hunt so many times. And I think people yep. should be more interested in it than just beyond like the. I, for lack of a better term, the shock and awe of somebody who goes and hunts muskox. And here's why. Um, I'm going to do a shameless plug for my work podcast, uh, the Prairie Farm Podcast. If you have not yet turned into it or tuned into it, you definitely will want to. You might be like, I don't care about farming. Well, it's not all about farming. In fact, we have a lot of great hunters that come on there. Um, Doug Duran from Meat Eater is on there. Ryan Callahan from Meat Eater is on there. Skip Sly from Iowa Whitetails is on on there. Um, Steve Hansen, Sam Soholt. Uh, you just go down the list. There's a lot of great hunters on there, a lot of land managers, and just people who are interested in conservation. But one of the episodes on there is part of a three-part series, and I'm almost done editing the, the second episode. Uh, it's called the Prehistoric Prairie uh, Podcast Series. And it's a documentary-style uh, podcast series where we're looking at the history of prairie here in the Midwest. And um, we talk in the first episode, which is already out. I think it's like episode number 62 or something like that, 60, somewhere in the early 60s. Um, that first episode talks about the critters that were here in the Midwest during, uh, the ice age timeframe. And, uh, there were some really wild critters, many of which are now extinct. Things like the giant ground sloth, woolly mammoth, uh, mastodon, saber tooth cats on and on. Right. 
But mm-hmm. one of those critters that used to be all throughout the Midwest, I'm sure it was was definitely in Michigan at one time, where Alex is from, and I know for a fact it was in Iowa uh, because they found uh, uh, fossilized or sub-fossilized evidence of these things. That is the muskox. Uh, muskox mm-hmm. was at one time spread all throughout, uh, you know, much of North America. And now I believe the only place you can find them are uh, in Alaska or parts of Canada. Is that correct, Alex? Yep. Yeah, you, got, you basically got Greenland and, uh, and Alaska there, so... Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So even more limited than I thought. Um, and you know, there's, we could go into a whole conservation rabbit hole on that. We could talk about climate, you know, climate change and, and so on and so forth, but that's not really the the target of this. Again, you can go to that podcast episode. I just told you about on the Prairie Farm podcast to hear more about that, but it's, it, I, I bring it up to say that what Alex was chasing after was really an ancient, relic of American wildlife and in some mm-hmm. ways doesn't get much more American uh, than chasing after muskox because of their history yep. here. And uh, uh, so I'm going to ask you this question a second, Alex, but I'm sure the listeners were asking this the second they decided to listen to the episode. Why would anybody want to hunt a muskox? So Alex, let's mm-hmm. start right there, buddy. <laughs> Why on earth did you, like, where did you get the idea? Why did you want to do it? Why muskox? I just think they're freaking cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, where, where else do you have this, like, prehistoric looking Arctic buffalo? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to describe <laughs> that's it. That's a good way to describe just, it, an I, Arctic buffalo. I love it. That's that's literally what, I, when I look at them, I'm like, all right, they're a little bit smaller <laughs> Arctic buffaloes. I mean, that's that's the key there. I mean, but they're just so cool. And, and the, I don't know, it's the it's the hair and the, you know, one of the other things that really, uh, really got me was I, I knew that their, their hide was like, I knew it was very sought after, but I didn't realize how awesome it was mm. and how much stuff is made out of them. And it's literally the warmest wool that you can get, like the finest wool that you can wow. get. So, um, you know, you're you're basically seeing folks make hats and scarves and stuff like that. And that's how they survive in these super cold environments from from their hide. And um, I, I don't know. I just I thought they were cool. I I was like, you know what? Like this this would be a once in a lifetime thing. I know it's super hard to get a tag, um, and I, I will add, you know, you mentioned Canada. I know there's can they're in Canada too, but I know their base is Greenland muskox. So okay. now most folks will go to Greenland to hunt them, okay. and uh, that's more of like it's it's a sure bet of you getting a uh, an opportunity to because you're basically like purchasing the right to hunt them mm-hmm. where you know in alaska you're doing it in a sense of it's it's a draw you know and it's very limited so i i really don't have any interest in going to canada or or greenland but alaska being in the states and i don't have to deal with all the the hoopla with yeah. you know flying with weapons in another country and the whole deal uh that was my appeal personally to to alaska and 
I mean, Alaska's an, an awesome, an awesome state. So I, I've talked about this before. I'm for adventure, not necessarily the trophy all the time, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I can appreciate the trophy too. If I can get both, that's one heck of an experience I'll never yeah, forget, you yeah. know? So that's, that's really kind of how that whole thing collided. And I, obviously I got fortunate to do it sooner than later, which is a, is a whole topic of its own. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, those are some great answers. And uh, I imagine, you know, for anyone that decides to go through the effort, which we're going to hear about here in a second, um, they would say a lot of the same things. There's, there's, uh, uh, you know, the whole adventure side of it, the, the, I don't know, mystique of such a crazy, almost fantasy land type animal. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they're just, they're just wild and crazy. And I think everyone can probably remember back to when they first heard of muskox. They probably laughed a little bit because they're kind of goofy looking critters. You know, they look like a giant rug uh, with horns. (laughs) They, uh, uh, I used to, I used to show a video. to my biology students of uh, muskox like fighting for dominance for breeding rates. Mm -hmm. And you want to talk about some hard hitting animals. I mean, just bonkers stuff that they're doing. They slam into each other's uh, heads that like horned skull plate that they have so hard. I mean, uh, compared to like bighorn sheep, seeing what they do to me, the, the muskox, I mean, first of all, you're dealing with a much heavier animal and, uh, they reach like really high speeds and, and just like their horns are, are closer to their, their head, you know? So it's like, it's like yeah. the baddest dude on the planet, you know, when you watch that thing, like slamming, yeah. cracking heads like that. And then they have that like legendary, uh, herding instinct of like um, defending the the young in their herds. You know they form that wall mm-hmm. around them basically, and yeah, it's very hard for a predator to penetrate that wall just because they're they're such powerful nasty animals. So, well, I got to witness it for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> they spotted you. <laughs> oh man. I'm sure we'll get into the story of it, but, but yeah, you know, that that's their only, like, that's their main defense mechanism is they, they operate as a team and uh, when they got a young one or a baby, they they basically, you know, if you haven't seen this right in context, we're trying to talk about it, but they basically get in a circle and all of their butts are touching, right. And their Mm -hmm. heads are out and they would have like a baby in the circle and they, operate as a unit so like if something was trying to get to that little baby or try to harm a smaller muskox like they don't deviate from being in a circle they literally just continue going in circles it's like it's like watching a uh, a carousel hmm. you know it, it's really it's really interesting but that they're basically a shield and and it, it's very unique but at the same time it's like gosh it's so slow and you're just kind of yeah. like sitting there you know so, yeah, so waiting for something to happen <laughs> Uh, totally it's it's kind of wild so um so yeah it it's cool obviously they've they've figured out how to survive and and protect their own i'm sure it doesn't work all the time i've seen some some wolves and stuff you know get to them but at the same point yeah they're they're pretty darn protective in that circle 
Yeah. Yeah. So all of that going for them. I mean, they're just, they're just interesting critters. Unlike anything that we have now, other than maybe, um, uh, plains bison kind of do a similar thing, but I think plains bison, uh, stampede easier than muskox do like that. Like that wall is broken a little bit more easy, you know, like they, mm-hmm. they have more of a flight response, I think, than, than what the muskox seem to have. And, uh, so, yep. so, uh, again, you know, just kind of in a class of their own. 100%. I, uh, I also think, you know, in context, bison are, I mean, they're bigger animals, mm-hmm. not to say a muskox is not, but you know, you're saying seven, 800 pounds or, you know, let's call it a lot bigger. I, I don't know a, a full on bison weight, but you know, I've, I've seen them hit double that on a, on a scale. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Know? yes. So, so that's a, that's a very, very large animal. I can only imagine um, packing that thing out. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's uh <laughs> <laughs> there's uh no way one person could do that i don't think in a day's worth of work you know not like, a chance that's, that's uh that's some serious uh work but well the next thing that comes to mind whenever i hear about you know people hunting in that arctic uh circumstance scenario environment um gear gear is going to be extreme because the weather is going to be extreme. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you're literally, you're, you're above the Arctic circle. Right. And, um, you know, the, uh, as cold as it gets takes place up there mm-hmm. during the, like what time of year is the hunting season for muskox? Is that, is that a, uh, like a fall hunt or is that a, summer you know what when is it spring well so alaska's actually got two seasons for it they have a fall and they have a spring season Hmm. so the the difference is the fall season you're not hunting them in the snow you're hunting them in like the tundra uh, and essentially you're thinking soggy more of a soggy grass right in a sense yep uh versus you know when i when i think about it frosting over and then you start getting like you know, the nasty snow. So you have essentially two different options to put in for an application to draw that tag. I opted for, I actually, I, I preferred the winter hunt, you know, I, which is technically spring, right? It's, it's a spring hunt. It's technically a year and a half. So you basically have two years of prep if you think about it, which, you know, with anybody that I talk to, if you're playing in Alaska, you probably should be planning two to two plus years in advance just mm. in logistics wise. So that was, that was my first thought. My second one is I would prefer to hunt something that's brown in a white environment than yeah. hunting something brown <laughs> in a brown environment. Yeah. So that's a good call. <laughs> so, so that was, that was my second preference. I really did not think about the cold necessarily in my consideration, which, you know, good or bad. I don't, I don't know, but you know, I think there's pros and cons with either or, I just opted to whatever I did. Obviously it worked out for me. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you said you didn't really plan for the, well, not that way. Like cold wasn't your deciding factor is basically what you were saying. 
No, not at all. I know you too well to know that you are a gear junkie, and I'm sure you planned <laughs> for the cold once you knew you were going to be hunting in it. And uh, yes. did you like have to like totally buy a bunch of new stuff just for this hunt? Did you rent a bunch of stuff? Like, like how did you go about preparing for this ridiculous cold? Yeah. So the <sighs> so the the biggest things that I learned about this was, you know, January, February, you know, that area gets hit more with snow where in March it's windier. It's not necessarily mm. snowier. Sure. So I had decided, you know, out of the hunt dates that I had available, I was going to opt in for a March hunt. I actually went the last, I think it was the last or basically the closest to the end of the season that I could. And so this was, I, I don't remember the dates exactly, but let's let's call it the second week of March that I went at the time. And I can't remember if it was the dates or if it was the, because I, you know, what, one of the things that you have to do for this hunt is you either have to go guided or you have to have a transporter mm -hmm. and, and either, or, and, you know, I can, I, I guess I can explain that more in context later, but you know, you have to pick dates obviously because there's people hunting. So I had picked this week that that worked out for me best but it was during the windier times but it also was kind of setting it up where it could be potentially warmer so i was like you know i'll take wind and a little bit warmer versus you know worrying about snow and the flights and stuff like that at yeah. least that was my mindset going into it but as far as gear goes you know i i am a gear junkie i will admit <laughs> it, is, it is not a problem <laughs> so <laughs> uh, with that said <laughs> With that said, you know, obviously I have a lot of gear and, and I rent gear out, so I, I have a lot of stuff to play with. One of my things, though, was I really was trying to go as light as possible. So sure. I, I literally had a backpack. I had one duffel bag, which was, uh, I think it's a, it's called a Kuyu Taku uh and i think it's like a five thousand or six thousand cubic inch it's not a lot of stuff and a gun hmm. that's literally all i packed wow so i had to fit all this stuff so i was like okay well how am i going to get like the warmth to weight ratio that i want so i really i just packed a lot of down products and then i actually packed i knew it was gonna be cold and i was like what is gonna hold this heat in especially if i'm on a snowmobile mm -hmm. and it's windy and you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to be sedentary or I'm going to be walking around a lot. I, I couldn't imagine I'd be walking around a lot. Right. And uh, and nobody really said you'd be hiking around a ton. So I, I, I ventured towards the side of stationary versus mo mobility. So I actually packed my parka and bibs that I would whitetail hunt in like November or December. Oh, okay. So that was like my main my main outfit, and then I I packed down layers inside and a whole lot of hand warmers and body warmers, and I I literally chucked all of those in my down, and then I put my parka and bibs over it, and I was, I mean I was sweating, I was so hot, it was insane, but it was exactly <laughs> what I needed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so you felt like you you were you know reasonably insulated for that that environment yeah the only thing that i didn't have I, I i took snowboarding goggles because i knew i would be on a snowmobile and like a uh on a, a buff or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. uh 
you know, I call them buffs, but there was basically a gator that covers your neck and your face. And the gator was fine, but my, my goggles were not wide enough for that uh, setup. Yeah. So my, um, my transporter ended up giving me a pair of his to borrow. And then when I got back home, I ended up buying a wider pair of snowboarding goggles. Cause I was like, if I ever go over there again, I'm going to want to use those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you want to remember what learned. you had. Yeah. So, totally. and I imagine they had to have a pretty good tint on them too. Right. Just because of so much snow glare. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were, um, yeah, they were, they were a, like a reflective deal. I mean, they, they definitely were some kind of sport goggles. They were like a silver glare to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember everything kind of being a blue tint. And it was wild because you'd have to like, you'd have to stop the glass off of your snow machine. And then you stop and you take your goggles off and everything just goes poof. Like it just becomes so bright and <laughs> oh, the glare. And then you're, you're it's got to be painful. You know, oh, it was brutal because, you know, it was sunny. And the sun's just hitting the snow and then you're putting your binoculars up to it. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge when you're not used to the environment and you don't know what you're looking for. You know, it's not like you can go scouting for muskox, you know, to (laughs) train your eyes for it. You know, you can can watch all the videos in the world, but, you know, aside for talking to people, which, you know, I think it does a little bit, but until you can experience it, there's just really not anything that could prep you for that per se, unless, you know, if I think about it today, I mean, if somebody was to go that far, I literally would tell you, like, you need to go out and like some deep snow on a sunny day and set up some really small brown things in a field and start, you know, glass and something like that to get used to what you would be looking at and something similar, you know, over there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's gotta be a real challenge. And I think the sun would just be such a huge part of that challenge. Um, I think, I think, uh, my eyes would be like watering <laughs> while I'm looking <laughs> through those binos. I'm, I don't know what it is, but I'm pretty sensitive to like uh bright light. It bugs my eyes big time. Oh, yeah. I always wear sunglasses. Um, but it, I think that would be, that'd be a real challenge for me, but, um, no, that's, uh, it's a it's a good thing to consider and i wouldn't have thought of the snow you know the snowmobile goggles or the, the snowboarding goggles um, but yeah definitely a part of it did that make it challenging then too when you went you know take a shot like did you have to quick peel peel your goggles off to be able to see through your scope or were you able to yeah i, I can't even imagine yeah i'm sure you had to take them off because just yeah, being able to no. fit your face on the rifle behind the scope the right way right yeah, I would say I say once you. Well, I can't speak for anybody else, but once I found, you know, a herd, it was pretty much game over on the goggles. Those things were off, hmm. and you know, you you kind of go into it. I don't know. I I couldn't even tell you that I remember any detail past the point of like, oh, it's it's it. You know, it's game time, and your your brain goes into a whole different focus of sure. You know, adrenaline and your your mindset just changes so I'll, I'll i'll leave it at that but yeah no i mean i took them off and I, I didn't put them back on until we were packing the animal back to the to the house yeah yeah that's that's uh that's has to be part of it you know when you do when you hunt in those extreme environments you know so 
what would I include in that? Well, the bitter cold anywhere, you know, even here in the Midwest, uh, it can get like for a late season deer hunt, you know, you can be down around zero or even below zero for some of those hunts. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's pretty extreme weather. I mean, you're going to get frostbite if you're not careful in weather like that. And so you have to just like accept the fact that you're going to be walking around in an extra, you know, 10 pounds of clothes insulation, you know, all day you're going to be like, that's going to be part of it. Or if you're going to be, you know, well, when we were hunting in Montana for bears, it rained like every hour. (laughs) So part of sucked. Yeah. Yeah. It was well part, part of that hunt meant you had to have your rain cover on your pack pretty much all the time. And, uh, which worked out well for, uh, Rasty when I uh, dropped my can of bear spray and it hit his, sprayed his pack. That was so funny. (laughs) But, uh, that was funny. (laughs) Yes, it was. It was pretty funny, but, uh, (laughs) we got lucky too. Um, could have been way worse, but, um, that, you know, that was like having the rain fly and then always having your rain gear on. You know, you constantly have to put rain pants on, constantly having to, you basically just lived in your rain jacket, which meant you're sweating buckets all the time, you know, anytime you're hiking. Or, mm-hmm. you know, if you're like, and I don't do any waterfowl hunting, but obviously those guys got to get the waders on and, and uh, you know, they spend all day in a probably somewhat soggy pair of waders. And it's like, if you're going to hunt some of these species or in some of these uh, climatic conditions, you're going to have to accept the fact that the gear part of it, yes, you might be able to like hack it a little bit, but it's still, it's not going to be like, you know, you're not going to be chilling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like no, you're you're going to be, you're going to be annoyed by that gear that lets you be in that environment, you know? And I think we can kind of forget that because we're just like, Oh, as long as I get the gear, you know, I'll be all right. Well, yes. Like it, 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 you know, keeps you dry or it keeps you warm, but, uh, or in your case keeps you from going blind, <laughs> but it's going right. to, it's going to be, it's going to be a hindrance as well. Like there's give and take with it. And, um, then, you know, as you start hunting those things more often, you start learning, okay, I could probably get away with, uh, not using this thing anymore or, you know, and, and you can kind of hone it a little bit, but when you're just doing a one-time thing, like a musk ox hunt, you're, you're kind of just going to have to embrace it all week. So it's part of it though. You know, I think it's, I think people chase comfort too much in general. Um, I watched this. I watched this uh, commercial while I was getting my hair cut this morning. They had the TV Mm. going. And uh, it was for a plumbing company. And they showed how people had these, like, the the examples, you know, it's like the infomercial. The person like opens their cupboard door under their sink and they just see water squirting everywhere. Oh they're, yeah, they're, they're panicked. All the misery, right? Yeah. And they're and they're and they're like, oh, you know, call blah 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 company and we will restore you to peace and comfort as soon as possible. And it just and they showed this like lady chilling on her couch, just like breathing deeply like oh thank goodness my pipes aren't leaking and and it just made me think like wow this company knows how much of our society is totally preoccupied with 
comfort being like that that's a non-negotiable you know you know what i mean yeah like totally like people will work miserable jobs for a higher paycheck just so they can afford more comforts you know what i mean and it's it's like it's society I, I think, these days right? i i know and you know i'm getting on a little bit of a soapbox here but i think that bleeds into hunting and i think people just they they really just yeah i'm gonna go out there but i really got to be comfortable i really got to have that that box blind that's got you know the the propane heaters going and i gotta oh, know, yeah. sure sure if i got out of here and i got into that tree line over there i might be able to have better opportunities it's like dude you're going out into nature for a reason be in nature you know what i mean and i'm not saying that like yeah. all box blind hunting is bad or anything not not at all i killed my first deer out of a box blind um and uh but like that can't be your if you, if you want to have hunting success that can't yeah, be. Yeah, usually got to embrace the suck. Exactly, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I talked about that with Brad Willie of uh, of Big Woods Bucks, uh, our buddy up there in New Hampshire, uh, who uh, does all the buck tracking. Um, he's an expert at it. Like, there's nothing easy about <laughs> stumbling through these giant forests of New England, following buck tracks and hoping it leads to something. You know? Yeah. And and. Uh, I think that's good for us, though, and I think it's important to remember that side of hunting. So if you're going to chase muskox, you're going to be miserable, and you need to embrace that yeah. if you're going to have some success. So uh, that kind of takes me to the, the the best part of this podcast. We get to hear the the story. So you, um, I remember you telling me you had to really line up your transportation ahead of time. Like you had to have not only just your flight to Alaska – but then once you get to Alaska, okay, now I got to get to where I'm actually going to hunt. Can you just kind of break down that whole process? Yeah. So, and that's why, I mean, um, you got to, you got to prep everything in advance because Alaska's, Alaska's 90% logistics in my, in my personal opinion, if you don't have the transportation set up, including obviously flights, for the most part, you're going to be pretty pretty limited on what opportunities you have. Now, again, there could be great opportunities. I'm not saying that every single one is like that, but a lot of them are. And you know, in context, not even just a a muskox hunt, but you know, let's say you're going on a moose hunt. You know, you got to figure out if you're if you're hunting off of you know a drivable area, which not many are. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be on a on a on a boat? You know, is, is somebody going to be taking you on a, you know, float option, you know, down a river and dropping you off? Or are you going to be getting a 16 foot aluminum boat with a small little motor for a week? And how are you getting to that point? Are you having to rent, you know, um, a huge tent and are you taking an inflatable little raft somewhere and you're getting dropped off? Are you? Are you flying in on a float plane? Are you flying in a prop plane? You know, all, all those things take a lot of logistics because some of them are booked out years in advance. I mean, hmm. I'm I'm still waiting, and I, I'm on. A, I've been on a list now for four years Whoa. to get on a flight service for a moose hunt. That you know, we're basically in line on a raffle at this point, but it's just 
that's just how it works, you know? So, so, you know, there's just a lot of planning. So in my case for this Moscow ox hunt, that's, that's somewhat how it worked. You know, I had a 18 months, you know, let's, let's call it two, two full seasons to kind of make through here. And, uh, I had what I had, so I had to fly from, I flew from Michigan to, I forgot what, what state I flew into. I had a connecting flight. I actually think I flew in connecting flight to you fly to like I, Washington I, state or something. I ended up in Washington, but I, I, if I recall my connecting flight was in, I think it was in salt Lake. And then from salt Lake, I went to Spokane and then no, actually from salt Lake, I went to Seattle from Seattle. I went to, uh, Anchorage and from Anchorage, I went to Bethel. So these are all like different flights aside for oh, man. Salt Lake connecting to to Seattle. Um, and then from Bethel, I had to catch a small flight to Nunavak, which is where, you know, the hunt takes place, which is essentially an island. Hmm. So so that that I would say really is the biggest logistic. And then, you know, you obviously have overnight stays. So you're not doing this all in, in one day per se. Yeah. So in Bethel, I ended up, there's no hotels. I mean, Bethel's tiny. It's a, it's, I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a so-called airport. It's got, I think two or three spots where you like can weigh your bags on like a scale, you know, like when you go, you yeah. go to the Delta counter and there's a bunch of people waiting for you and they got scales on each one. I think there yeah. were only like three little counters there. And then there's one conveyor belt that literally goes nowhere. I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't even know why there's a conveyor belt. It goes belt. like 20 feet. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah. So, so, and then, I mean, it was, it was frigid. So like, I remember getting there, landed, and then I had booked basically a, I wouldn't even call it an Airbnb. I, I basically found a person that labeled their place as a, as a hotel stay, but it's basically you're, you're paying for a room out of their house. So I, I landed. Were they, were they staying I, there while you were there? Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically like a dude that had a house and he basically made three rooms in his place just for like folks to stay at. And then you wow. paid, I don't know, I paid like 70 or 80 bucks for the night. I will say that I thought that was going to be pretty sketchy because I, I've never done that in my life and yeah. you know, I'm pretty I, I like my space and my privacy, but you know, you yep. got to do what you got to do, yep. but that was actually pretty cool. I mean, super nice guy. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, you, you just, you know, you just got to know somebody else and, and it was, it yeah. was neat. I mean, he showed me all around and, uh, he had picked me up at the, uh, at the airport. He lived like five minutes away from the airport, uh, showed me all around, like, you know, where was what and, you know, where some of the outfitters were kind of going out of for moose hunts. And then he, he uh, showed me like where they get water from, which is like, it's pretty interesting. Like they basically get water delivery to their homes for like X period of time for like huh. gallons. And it, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a different lifestyle there, man. Wow. Um, he had like a huge, huge yard. So he was showing me like what he grows and how he pays attention to his sunsets and stuff. He ended up cooking me like a, massive steak dinner i mean it was it was hilarious that's awesome and man 
Totally. It was, it was, it was great. Then he had like, he, he, he worked out of the hospital there. That was his, his job. So then he ended up having like two of his coworkers stop by and you know, we all ended up having drinks together. I mean, yeah, it just was, ended up, ended was, up being a memorable part of the trip. Totally. I, and I ended up, I actually ended up calling him on my way back and stayed another night with him over there. <laughs> nice. So, so. You, so you actually came out with a friend out of the deal. Yeah. I, I, I still talk to him. He's, uh, he's always posting stuff on Facebook from his, from his house and his garden and stuff. It's, it's, it's That's funny, cool. but, but yeah, so, so stuff like that, you gotta, you have to consider that, you know, so you have to have that pre-planned because again, there's, you don't have like a hotel stay that you're going to book when you land at the airport, you know? So, right. Um, and then, you know, how are you getting from point A to point B? So even with me, like hunt planning for clients, like that's all the stuff that like we're looking into because we have to have that plan for yeah. somebody if they're yep. doing something like that, you know? So that's um, where that's, that's one of the things that I think is the biggest like insurance policy part of what you offer, Alex. I think, uh, people, people probably do not realize that all of that has to take place until they're in the middle of it. You know what I mean? Like they'll, they'll find out eventually. Cause they'll be thinking, okay, if this flight, if this connecting flight gets me to here that, well, then that means I'm getting there at like 1am. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do I do? Are there any hotels? Oh, wow. There are no hotels. There's 25 people that live there. Um, right. you know, okay, where am I going to sleep? You know, like you don't think of that until it's almost too late. Whereas a hunt planner like yourself, you know, that's part of it. And that's probably actually one of the first things you're going to be working on because in many ways, that's the hardest part to nail down. I got to imagine. Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, it's just having an itinerary to it, you know, and, and, you know, like I actually, now that I'm even thinking about it. So one of the things that I did not think about, I I guess I wouldn't say I didn't think about, but I didn't think it was going to be as difficult. I had, I had called ahead of time to the airport and had, had basically requested, Hey, is there, you know, you know, is there an Uber service or something similar, similar right of taxis? So this Mm -hmm. was like, this was two days two days before I was flying out, I had called back to basically confirm like what was the company that I would contact. So I had all that contact information. Uh, and, and, and truly it's a lot of those, a lot of those small businesses just, they go out of business. So you never know who the heck's operating anymore. So, so I, I called, they said, yep, you know, here's, here's the contact. Cool. You know, I'd landed, I called, I called the taxi service. Well, what ended up happening was, the guy that I'd booked the, the whatever hotel room out of his house stay, he, he didn't like come right off of the bat. I was trying to get a hold of him. He was like, he was still working or whatnot when I had mm. landed. So I was going to be stuck at the airport for like four hours. Oh man! So I'm like, all right, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll get a taxi. I know who to contact, whatever. Well, then I call the taxi and they're like, oh, we're like two hours out on taxi rides. I'm like, you gotta <laughs> be kidding me. And it was like, negative i don't even remember it was like 44 degrees below zero with the wind so i'm like you know it was brutal so i'm like okay well i'm gonna stay in this little tiny you know airport and wait and then just a safety thing at that point you know you can't be out walking around in that kind of weather 
Well, totally. But but then they were like, oh, you know, there's taxis that pass by on the outside. So you might want to hang out outside to have a taxi pass by. I'm like, <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go outside and wait outside. And yeah, for something that for might them. happen. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> Not a chance, right? And I I did go out there, and I'm like, where are you talking about? You got to go outside and stand over here. You're basically like standing next to the road. Well, happens. Wind just blasting you. Totally, totally. So so I end up, <clears throat> I end up actually hitching a ride with somebody else that was at that airport, and then yeah, so that's actually what happened. So they had hitched hitched the ride over there. I had then gotten dropped off at the guy's house because I had his I had his uh, address and he had left like the door unlocked and all that so I, I ended up I had called him and kind of gotten all the details hashed out there. Uh, but super nice people. He was a former uh, uh, basically a game warden in Alaska and his wife was a teacher in town. So like super nice people and they were like, mm. hey just just throw your stuff in back. We'll take you like it's, it's five minutes on the road. I was like, are you guys sure? And they're like, yeah, it's like, we're not letting you stay out here. I was like, all right, perfect. Cool. Really appreciated them. Yeah. Super nice people, you know, dropped me off at the guy's house. I got, I got comfortable. Then he got there and he basically, he had shuttled me around from there on and picked me up on the, on the other side of things with the airport. And, you know, all those things are just little nuanced details that you really got to think about. Cause yeah. had you gotten there, you didn't know if you even had a taxi service. You had no idea how you're going to hitch a ride. I mean, you basically be stuck at the airport. You don't even know who's responsible for what, you know, mm -hmm. you, you really become a, a you really got to move with the environment and stuff like that. And, and, yeah. you know, which so anyways, honestly, that's what would feel. There, there's two things about this. The other one I'm going to get to here in a second, I'm going to ask you about, but like sometimes do you ever consider like, wow, I went all the way there and now I'm back here at home safe and sound with the people that I love. Like, I can't even believe that like all of those connecting pieces came together for me to do that. You know what I mean? Like, like sometimes I feel that yeah. way when I haven't even gone anywhere near as remote as, as what you have. But, uh, like that's, there's just so many of those little details that have to be worked out and you got to have help from other people, you know, to, mm -hmm. to be able to get that done. Do you, like, did, did that thought like ever cross your mind? Like, wow, this is insane that, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dorothy well, from Wizard I, of Oz. You know, I don't I, think this I did is it, Kansas I did it. anymore. <laughs> Correct. I mean, the the reality is I did that, you know, that, that whole trip was solo in a sense, you know. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, you're, you're literally going in the middle of nowhere by yourself, you know. So yeah. I, that, people that was freaking nuts. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're beating me to my second point. I, that's the other thing I've always thought of when you told me about this trip is, when I found out you did it all by yourself. And honestly, the first time I heard about such a hunt was watching meat eater. Yep. When, uh, Ranella did his, his hunt and I would catch myself thinking, man, he must be so lonely up there. But then I remember, Oh, he's got a camera guy, you know, like he's right. got, he's got a friend with him. You right. by yourself. I mean, was loneliness, something that a you dreaded going into it and b something that crept into your mind quite a bit while you were there um so okay let me let me step back here <laughs> yeah yeah so the the loneliness part you know i'm i'm a big 
I like to hunt by myself. So that's mm. not a, that's not a concern. The travel by yourself and like going to a really unknown place. I mean, the, you know, being in the lower 48 is one thing. Once you start kind of set out of that bound, you know, now yeah. you're in a, in a totally different territory. So that, you know, it, it's definitely an uneasy feeling. My biggest thing is, you know, the things that give you the greatest concern or unease is usually also where you get your greatest reward, right? It's kind of like yep, yep, absolutely. no risk, no reward. So I'm, I'm pretty tactical in the way that I think about things, but at the same point, like that will lead me to be like, okay, you've got all your ducks in a row. Like now you got to take the jump, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's really kind of how that all worked out for me. I know a lot of people thought it was crazy, but it is what it is. I'll, I'll take the nuts factor, <laughs> you know? I, I, at some point you got to just say you got some balls and you got to go move, you know? Yep. So, so with that, you know, that's, that's kind of how I, I thought about the process. The mediator thing was kind of funny because watching that after the fact of going on that hunt, mm-hmm. I literally sat in the same chair and had the same person as Ronella. Really? Did. So like, <laughs> if, if you guys, if you guys watch that episode, you would literally be watching like you would just trade me out with Ronella and I literally sat on the same chair, probably ate on the same bowl that he had. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so it, it's kind of, kind of funny in that regard of how that all worked out. And what I didn't think about, you, you said the loneliness thing. I had a buddy of mine. He, he, um, he works in Idaho and he had said, Hey, you know, there's a, there's something called Island fever. You ought to, ought to talk to your, doctor and get like a script for like a week and i can't remember if it was I, i'm not i'm not familiar with all the drugs but i'm pretty sure it was xanax that he was telling me to get and oh yeah. he's like you know you're you want to have something that like chills you out because you're gonna like freak out and i'm like nah I'm like i don't i don't want to take something like that i'm, I'm not into right. that I'll, I'll be fine you know well you know if we get into context of the story right i i end up i end up landing in Bethel. Then I end up getting another flight from Bethel to Nunavak. Well, that's, that's like a small prop plane. And what you, what you learn is in, in Bethel, when these little prop planes are going out, you basically purchase this plane ticket. So I remember the next day I had a plane, I had a flight out at like nine 15 in the morning or something mm. of that nature, nine 30. Well, you get there and you're like, you know, you're used to like, all right, I got to board my plane at nine 30 or I'm missing this flight. Right. Yeah that's that's like that does not resonate for anybody in that world <laughs> they're they're on their own time so like <laughs> it says 9 30 you might be flying out at five in the afternoon and you'll not have a clue so oh, man so so basically i'm at the i'm at the airport at nine maybe no i was i was before because i remember i was i like woke up i got all my stuff together i got dropped off it was probably like 8 30 and then I'm sitting there and I like go up to the counter and there's like, there's nobody. I'm literally the only person in the airport. And I'm like, so, so like what, what happens next? You're like, oh, you know, you got to get on the scale. Yeah. Uh, you gotta, you got to get your weight and then you got to keep your weight. So that's one thing that like I knew going into it, you got to keep your weight at a certain amount because you can only take so much on these small prop planes. Sure. So, you know, if you, you just, you can't pack all your stuff, all your comforts that you want that you were talking about, you know? Yep. So I ended up having 10 pounds in my backpack. I jumped on, you know, I weighed myself and then I had like one bag, which was what I told you, my gear and then my rifle. So, so you don't pay for any of your, 
bags per se when you get a flight on one of these prop planes but they but they also everything's on weight so you're basically like fighting for who is going to get on this flight first and get their gear on this flight first to not max out the plane mm. so so i'm waiting there and then as it gets closer to like 9 30 you know a few more people show up and then we're kind of waiting i don't think we got even on the i don't i don't think we even lined up to get on the flight until like 11 o'clock Wow. And you don't have like, you know, people gate checking you and all this stuff. Literally, the pilot comes in and then starts calling people's names off like a random paper. And then in order, then you start kind of walking out and then like another person is bringing the bags. And they start stuffing the bags in and then you're basically trying to jump off this flight and get in order to be with your bags. It is not organized. And to be honest, you don't even know if somebody's like jumping into the flight that doesn't even have a ticket. Yeah. So, so anyways, it was a windy day. We had to wait for all the clouds to clear and make sure it was all good. And you know, that we weren't going to freaking crash and the whole deal They had to de-ice the plane a bunch of times. Finally, we get in this thing and then we end up going and I, I think we landed two different times on different islands before we landed on Nunavak. So you're basically landing in these tiny little villages and then, you know, there's people waiting there and they're basically like either family members that are dropping off or their supply drops essentially for people in, in these little tiny areas. Mm -hmm. So super cool to see definitely a different lifestyle. I mean, it's, it's subsistence living. That's for sure. sure. Yep. And then um, when I, when I landed, you know, my guide was, or my transporter was waiting for me there with us literally a snowmobile and like a little trailer hitched wood box. And, uh, I went to meet him. He had no idea what I looked like or who I was. I, I knew who he was. So I walked up to him and I introduced myself and he's like, he literally looks at me. He goes, this is all the stuff you have. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, yeah. And he's like, I love it. You packed light. And I was like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah like he was expecting me to bring like four bags or something you know i was like do people pack a lot and he's like yeah we never can fit their stuff and we're waiting for flights and stuff like that and i was like yeah i don't want to do any of that yeah <laughs> so, I, I just want to get going man <laughs> oh man yeah so so then um so yeah i mean and it was like a five minute drive to it, they're basically like double wide trailers that you know these you know the, the guides and basically all of the locals live in and it's like a village of less than 200 people and that's that's it and you know they're getting they're getting all their food and fuel and all that from a little tiny double wide trailer that's essentially like their gas station mm. and kind of their little snack store if, in a sense and then everything else is it's coming from from freight or food drops and stuff like that. So it's, it's tough living up there. They're definitely living off the land. You know, I definitely respected their lifestyle and, and what, what they got going on. So, yeah. you know, seeing that, that definitely added a little bit more edge to the solo thing, you know, cause you're like, man, like something could happen. You're like, you're, you're not going anywhere, you know? Right. Yeah. And yeah. Like that's it. I mean, <laughs> that's it, man. I mean, I, I'd be stuck there living with them on, uh, you know, I'd be, I'd be living off the land with them, you know, and that's yeah. kind of reality. So, so, you know, I, I can, I'll give you, I'll give you kind of the whole story to it because it all ties into my Island fever here. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
so we like we get to we get to the uh outfitter's house and there's three other guys that are coming in so i'm the early one and then my transporter his uh his house was like you know five minutes away or something like that i was actually staying with him so i just basically checked in met with the outfitter introduced myself we had to sign some paperwork and stuff like that and mm-hmm. uh, yeah kind of square square some legal stuff away for for the hunt and then um i had to kind of prove that i had all my ducks in a row too sure and then and then you know i kind of realized i'm like all right well this is this is kind of small quarters you know you got a couple bunk beds kind of deal i ended up crashing on the guy's couch and then we jumped on the snowmobiles and we were we were out i mean we were gone we just grabbed our our gear and uh, he had a snowmobile, I had a snowmobile, he had like a little trailer deal to it. And I just had to basically follow him, get comfortable. We rode for probably four hours. Whoa. So it wasn't like a close kind of a deal, you know, and, and all I was thinking about was, well, I, you know, you're really in the middle of nowhere. You don't see a, I mean, you don't see one thing besides white. And it's just like when, when we hunt in Kansas, you know, you're looking at a crop field and you're like, yeah. Oh, it's flat. And then when you walk it, it, you know, you're seeing all the deviations in the, in the, in the topography. Yep. It's the same deal here. I mean, you think you're seeing white for 10 miles, but when you're driving it or you're walking in it, I mean, it is just, it's up and down, up and down. And you know, you, you could easily go up a small ridge and be down and there could be muskox or foxes or caribou or something in, in yep. one of these little deals. So kind of what ended up happening we we ran into we ran into a i think a couple arctic foxes which it was that was actually really cool to see and then we stopped i I admired them a little bit you know we we could have hunted them i was just like i'm not wasting time on that right now right and then we ended up finding a caribou herd that had crossed over us oh that's cool yeah so so we ended up kind of we were following their their tracks then we ended up crossing muskox tracks so we ended up following the muskox track we ended up finding one muskox oh that's cool so yeah it was weird it was a lone cow which was like really strange Mm -hmm. and then she like ran away from us and um we followed her and then we got to this ridge and we started just glassing off this ridge and i'm i'm literally glassing and i'm like yeah, there's, there's a bunch of rocks and like a, a shrub and my transporter is like, yeah, there's rocks and there's, there's 11 muskox right there. And I'm literally looking at them and I'm like, I have no clue what this guy's talking about. <laughs> like I see rocks, you know? Yeah. And sure as heck, like the way that they look like literally there were boulders in the snow and these muskox were laying on top of the boulders. Wow. I could not. I could not tell the difference of the muskox and the boulders. And, and that kind of goes back to the one, your eyes got to be trained for it. And two, the glare. Yeah. I, I would have, I would have not thought that they were, you know, I literally sat there and I'm watching them and, you know, I don't have a tripod, so I'm not steady. I'm like shaking as I'm watching them. And I'm like, man, I, I mean, he's got an eye for this. I mean, he clearly is, is looking at these animals all day long. Sure as heck out of nowhere like one of them stands up and then immediately when he's one of the bulls stood up and i was like okay now i now i can see what he's looking at and yeah. that bull nut stood up 
I mean, if I was by myself, I'd have drove right by those things. Well, and that speaks to your decision to hunt in that color contrast environment instead of, you know, had they been with all the brown, you know, tundra grass and soil and totally. everything, you would have definitely not seen them then. So now I got to no. ask, what are these critters eating up there? You know, like the muskox, the caribou, even the, the fox, you know, in such a frozen world, are they just rooting around until they get down to some of that that uh, vegetation that's left over? Yeah. Or is, or, you know, like what's, what's going on with that? Yeah, so there's a... Yes. So essentially it's, it's basically there. I mean, there's, there's some shrubs that are like sticking out. I mean, they're basically just sticks. There's no leaves on them or anything at this time of year. Uh, You see a little bit of that, but yeah, they're basically digging to get to the, you know, the grasses and stuff like that. For the most part, there was some vegetation around some of those boulders that they were, they were, that they were laying on top of. So it, I would venture to bet that's why they were probably bedded there was they had mm. food right next to them. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, the foxes are eating, you know, mice and stuff like that. They're poking around or, or anything that dies. They're basically just like ravens, you know, they're scavengers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the caribou, same deal. You know, one of the things with the muskox too, with that hunt is the muskox search around for food. A lot of times they're actually searching around the edges of the areas up against the ocean what's end up mm-hmm. happening is they don't realize that they actually start walking on ice blocks and then the ice okay, cracks yeah. and starts floating them out to sea. Ooh. And then they, they drown because they, they can't swim and they're, they're going out on this ice and now they're, they're off, you know, yeah. I don't know that they, they can't they swim, but can I can't imagine that they few, don't swim very well. They can lose quite a few animals that way. I imagine. Well, that's, that's exactly what was happening. So they, they ended up changing the quota statistics of how many animals could be in the carrying capacity over there because of how many were dying because they were, they were going to the ex- exterior parts of the, uh, of the land. And then yeah. they were basically getting lost out to sea. So I think at the time that I was there, they were like 200 animals above objective. Hmm. So that, that's quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there's, it's definitely struggle bus for food. So, so anyways, we end up, we end up seeing them. They end up seeing us from quite a while uh, away or quite a far way away. <laughs> I said that okay. <laughs> yep. And, and, uh, they, they immediately packed up and they, but they started running, you know? So we immediately hit it on, on our, you know, snowmobiles and, try to follow them they disappeared and then we we ended up we ended up catching up to them and they stopped they weren't running anymore and you know they're they're big animals and the snow's deep so they post hole then you know so they basically aren't going to keep running in that so they immediately went into their defense mechanism they literally went into that circle and the initial bull that i saw was he was a he was a good bull from afar when i was looking at him um, my transporter, you know, so when you get, here's the difference of a guide and a transporter. People always ask this, well, what's the difference? The transporter's job is really just to take you around until you find animals. They can't tell you sure. what animal to shoot. They can't give you any information on the animal and they cannot help you b- break down the animal. They're just basically there to transport. Okay. A, a guide would be there to be like, all right, yeah, well now, now here's <clears throat> what you're going to do. And 
here's the animal that I would recommend you shoot, here's why, and then they will be there to break down the animal with you. So, you know, it so is what it you is. Not, I, did you not really have a hunting guide then? You just had a transporter? I only paid for a transporter, yeah. Okay. okay. So, so yeah, to me it was having a snowmobile, having the, the travel, you know, locked down and having – somebody to pack that thing out for, you know, on a, on a snowmobile was the key for me. Yeah. So, so anyways, we get there, you know, I had, I had a pretty good idea of what was going to be a really good bull. This bull was, was killer. Cause I had seen a couple, you can tell for any, any of the listeners that are going to go on a muskox hunt, here's, here's a key component. When you're looking at a bull, you're, you're going to see their, you know, you're going to see their horns and, and the kind of that skull plate on the top of their head. Mm-hmm. But as their horns kind of curve and they go up, you want their horns at the tips. If they have a lot of black on them, like their whole tip is black, it's not as a mature of a bull as if, if those tips are white or they have barely okay. any black. And, it, and that's from basically, that's just basically getting like rubbed off over, yeah, over yeah. time. Deer antlers kind of do that, you know, like, especially on the brow tine, you know, it'll be like brown towards the bottom. And then at the tips, it'll be all white, whitened. I right. assume it's just from the same thing. You just, they're rubbing on stuff. Right. And, and that's exactly it. You know, so, so I had seen, there were, there were 11 in the, in the herd. There were three mature bulls. There were, I think, three younger bulls, and the rest were cows. I mean, you can tell the younger younger bulls from the mature bulls right off the bat. But out of the mature bulls, like the bull was, I mean, he was, you know, may I say, sexy. He was a stud, and <laughs> and and his, yeah, I mean, his tips were like dang near white, you know. Yep. And so I was like dead set on on getting after this herd bull, you know. And you could tell he was a herd bull. This was really interesting. For an hour and a half, we did this hocus pocus game. I got within a hundred yards of them. I had my sled, and at that point, I got off of the sled, and they're in their little grouped herd. And then they would literally like meander in this group circle thing, and then they would start running for like a hundred yards, and then they would stop again. So I would literally go a hundred yards and stop. And we did this deal for literally almost two hours. It was that was exhausting. Oh, I bet. And every time that they would get in this group, the herd bull, like they were protecting the herd bull. So like, really? Yeah, it was wild. So like he would, he would like move and then they would like circle and then he would like, I would turn and then the whole group would turn. So like I kept trying to get to be in an angle where I could shoot him and not shoot another animal right, if that yeah, yeah. bullet was to go through him. Mm-hmm. And these two younger bulls, and I say younger, they were mature bulls, but they were a little bit younger than him. Their tips were significantly more black. They would, they would get in front of him every time I would try to shoot. And I literally got to the point where I'm like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to shoot this guy because every time that I try another bull jumps in the way. So it, it mm-hmm. became literally like, you know, when you see a pendulum swing Yeah. that it was like this timing of like, I was playing a video game and it was like, I was trying to hit a pendulum with like three pendulums swinging. <laughs> so I finally, I literally had it down to like, I watch five minutes and they keep doing this thing. And I was timing this pendulum of like, I'm going to have to literally pull the trigger at the perfect time to take them out. Yeah. And 
he, he literally, he stepped forward and one of the other bulls stepped forward. And then when that bull stepped back, I literally shot him right in the back of the head. Oh. And he, he, he dropped like instantly. That was the only way that I could get him to drop. Otherwise I think it would have been there for eight hours with them yeah. doing the same song and dance. Yeah. And, um, it was, I mean, quick, clean. He didn't move one ounce. The whole herd came off and, um, then it took hours. And when I say hours, like, I mean, I, I, I got to the animal. I'm like, dude, this thing is giant. And <laughs> it's, I mean, I was, I was in awe of like one happiness to like, obviously super thankful of the animal. You know, I, I took, yep. I probably took 20 minutes just sitting there, just admiring the animal. And, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that. Like, they they're such peculiar animals. What was the fur like? Really coarse, or was it super fine? Do they they look like they stink? I mean, they just oh, look they, like they, they they stink. They stink. There's uh, well, yes. So the, the fur is actually very fine. It's soft, as I said. Okay. It's, it's, it's a it's a wool. It's it's amazingly soft, but uh, but it's wet. They're, uh-huh. The the coat is soaked because of the snow so it's like so they're giving off enough body heat that they're just melting every bit of ice and snow that's on them yes and it becomes kind of like you know you could tell it's that's a way that they're retaining heat too you know it's kind of like snow holds temp in a sense right if you build a new glue it's gonna hold it so yeah i mean super admirable on on, uh, those animals are just they're amazing Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you see the size of them. I was actually shocked at their hooves. Their hooves are way different than I thought they were going to be. Yeah, they, I've and, noticed that before when I've seen them in videos that their hooves look kind of like weird almost compared to other yeah. animals. Yeah, they're not like what you, you know, it's not what you see of like, they're really more of like a bull, mm. like a like a cow bull. Like that's that sure. really kind of gave me more of the look than it was of a, you know, a a venison style, you know, um, you know, of a deer, a, a moose or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in my opinion, that just what it reminded me of, of, of that animal. But, but, um, I'll have to send you a picture of it. I have pictures of them. They're yeah, just, yeah, they're definitely. just, they're just, they're, they're just big hooves. You know, you're just looking at them and you're like, yeah, this is a, this is a big, it's heavy meant, animal. Meant for walking on ice. It's like <laughs> yeah. snowshoes. So, so, it, yeah. Yeah, I, I I give them that. The the um, you know, the hardest part of them, and I said they stink. So you what you here's what you don't realize: their head, the horns come so close to their head that when you start skinning them, which it took me I don't know four or five hours I think to to do the whole job. <laughs> um, the the outfitter or whatever the the transporter had come by and he's like that's a nice bull. And then he started telling me about, you know, the horns. He's like, look at his tips. And I said, yeah, I know. I mean, it, he's, he's awesome. And he's like, yeah, I know. He's like, you shot a really nice bull. So, that's cool. so then, um, he's like telling me, he's like, you know, you're going to have to get like a screwdriver or something to get the fur from, from under his, um, his horns. So I'm like, Oh, I didn't think about this. And I was like, yeah, a screwdriver. He's like, yeah, I might have one, you know, so we end up getting a flathead screwdriver and I'm literally like, lodging behind his horn and his skull plate uh-huh. and I'm, and I'm pulling out like fur balls and these fur balls are basically like decaying fur in their skull, uh, okay, on, uh like yeah. above their skull plate because 
that's how they basically, you know, hair gets yeah. lodged in there, and that that stinks. Well, that's well the horns only horns part. are technically like like made out of. I think they're made out of keratin, which is what you know the main protein that makes that's in hair, you know, and skin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not horns are not calcium like and phosphorus like antlers are they're they're a really a modified hair cell aren't they if i remember correctly yeah yeah i think you said it better than i did (laughs) (laughs) well i used to be a biology teacher so i had to study some of this stuff but i think that's i think it's i think that's what if i remember correctly i think horns are considered like like a variation of of hair tissue so that that's interesting that you had that you you observed that yeah i mean that was that was something that i i just didn't know you know that was that was a that was a learning experience Mm -hmm. and that was the the hardest part of breaking down that animal was you know trying to get that skull separated from the hide and um that that took so long because it's like there was so much detail there with the with horns you know once that was done you had to be getting cold too right because i mean actually one of the first things one of the first things uh i do when i'm gonna go uh, start working on an animal in the field is i start stripping off gloves you know what i mean like like i need i need the dexterity of my hands to make those Were, were you doing that too or is it just too cold to even think of doing that well, so the, the thing that made it so cold was the wind and the time of the day that we ended up like that I landed and going out and the whole deal. It sure. actually ended up warming up significantly. It was sunny and there was no more wind later in the day. So I ended up getting so hot that I ended up taking my parka off. And, you know, I was I was I was sweating. I mean, I was hot as it was. And then it, I mean, it was physical, right? You're lifting these legs and, oh, yeah. you know, you're doing so much work. I was I was stripped down pretty bad because I was sweating so much and I just didn't want to get to the point of like yeah, being, being soaked and then right, I'm putting exactly. you know so so no that that actually worked out in my favor that way That's and good. then you know we we took him we took him back to the uh, to the outfitter's place he had basically like his entrance to his house that was like sinks and basically just floorboards so that was like where we were it was like our meat cache and um i ended up getting everything rebagged and whatnot and then i left everything out on the porch because i wanted to freeze sure and uh, that was my freezer <laughs> <laughs> it's probably colder than your one at home <laughs> oh, totally totally and then and then then the project was okay now i gotta book another flight out yeah and you know full circle to your initial question so when you're booking a flight, you don't actually know when the flights are going to fly out. So I booked a flight for the following day. I don't know. I like four o'clock or four thirty, and, and then you're kind of waiting. And the only way that you know that the flight is going to happen, there's two ways. One, you wait until a freaking prop plane flies over the, their houses. And all of a sudden everybody starts freaking out and starts driving to the airstrip because they heard on the PA system and you heard this plane fly by or two, if you have service there, there's only a specific service that works. They have an app on their phone and it shows all the flights that are flying in and out. Okay. They can see them when they're in the air. So 
so now I'm back at the outfitter's place and, and now this is where your question of like going crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I started going nuts. So the three other guys that were in camp, they were out hunting. I probably talked to them for a total of five minutes. And then those, those three guys were all hunting with one person. Sure. And, and then I'm literally sitting this whole next day at this outfitter's house with him. And we're watching, I think I watched everything about shaving wood into totem poles for 12 hours. <laughs> and I was losing my mind. I'm literally like on my in reach trying to text people. Um, you know, I ate lunch and the whole deal, but there, there's physically nothing that I can do. I can't like work because everybody's doing something. Yep. I don't have any transportation. He's basically just watching over the house and making sure everything's going right. Kind of a deal. Yeah. And obviously I'm chatting with him and stuff like that, but you know, at, at, it's the context of like you, you physically feel like you're like in prison because you can't yeah, do trapped. anything. Yeah. And, uh, that was, you want to talk about anxiety. Like that was it. And the other thing that was, I was anxious about was, so I booked this flight and then the outfitters like, well, I hope this flight works out because the next four days look like they're wind, snow and rain. So they're probably not going to be flying for the next four days. Oh. So I'm like, I'm like, there's no way I'm, I'm going to be stuck here for another four days. I'm going to go bananas. Yeah. So I think that added to my anxiety of like, okay, <laughs> is the flight out? Is the flight yeah. out? You know, and the flight ended up flying out like an hour later than it was supposed to it ended up coming into town. And then now it was like, okay, the, uh, the outfitter guides, all that, they're all out with people. So I end up having to hitch a ride with somebody in town to get to the airstrip in time to basically get on this flight, chuck all my stuff up and, and, you know, basically make it without somebody else taking my spot. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, at that point, the decision was, in my part, I ended up taking the hide, the skull, and I, I ended up, we ended up eating some of the meat. Uh, we did like a stew in camp. Oh, that's cool. And then it was, it was awesome. But I ended up basically giving all of the meat to the locals. Oh, nice. And yeah, it was awesome. I, uh, I don't know, three or four of them came and literally grabbed all the meat. And uh, that was cool because they were so thankful for, you know, hate to say it, it's, it's food, right? I mean, it's, yep. you know, they're, yeah, it's, gotta be, it's hard to come by for the animals, hard to come by for the people there, I'm sure. Totally. So, so it was a good feel to do that on, on the same point. Like I'd have been, I'd have been waiting for another flight just to get more meat on the flight. So to me, it was, it, it wasn't going to be the make or break for me. And, and mm -hmm. I was happy to, to lend the food to them kind of a deal. And so I took the skull half, half of the cape to do like a shoulder mount yep. and my bags and stuff like that. I ended up actually getting everything on one flight oh, and then good. flew into Bethel. And that was the last flight that went out for, I think for quite a few days, I ended up getting back. I ended up staying in Bethel at that guy's house. And then the next day I ended up, I, I, I basically was booking my way back because I never knew what I what I was right, going to yep. be flying. So I ended up flying in Seattle. From Seattle, I flew into Spokane. From Spokane, I actually went and visited my buddy, who's the taxidermist that does all my stuff. So I ended up mm -hmm. going and dropping the muskox off to him, nice. and then booked a flight later that day. <laughs> out 
and then that took me from Seattle to I, th- I can't remember. I think that was a straight state straight flight back to Michigan, but I landed, and this was right as uh, you know all the COVID happenings were going on. Oh man! And I didn't realize it, but that was basically I, I this whole thing was happening on a Saturday. I uh-huh. got home on Sunday. Yeah. So yes. So a Saturday, I think it was like a red eye. I ended up getting home on Sunday. I ended up working on Monday and then everything had shut down on Monday for COVID. Oh man. So I was like, I'm so glad I got on that flight because I don't think I would be home right now and COVID would have closed down everything. Yeah. (laughs) And the flight service with the prop planes that flies you in and out of those little islands, that prop service went out of business like two weeks after the COVID shut down. So I don't even know when those guys, the other guys, came out or not, but I hope they made it home. (laughs) Oh, man. Even if you had had some happy pills with you, you would have ran out, sounds like. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'd have been. I'd have been, I would have been working. I could tell you that I would have been like, dude, I'm, I'm going to go find wood and do something. Cause this, this isn't going to work for me. Yeah. Yeah. So man, well, I'm glad, I'm glad it all uh, lined up for you to get home safe and sound. I'm sure your family was happy to see you. And, um, you know, it would have been cool if you could have gotten in some fishing while you were in Alaska or something, but, um, or even, you know, just in the Pacific Northwest after you came back to the lower 48, but, it's even better to be home safe and sound. And, you know, it's a happy ending too with the meet. Of course, I'm sure you wish you could have brought it all home and enjoyed that and shared it, you know, with your friends and family back home. But um, it's really cool that it was able to go to some people who really needed it too. It wasn't just a, you know, like a novelty totally. thing to a few friends back home. Like, oh, yeah, let's try muskox tonight, you know, which is fine. That's great. That's part of it. I love that part of it. But, um, you know, where somebody's like truly trying to fill the hole in their stomach every day, um, right. that's, that's, a that's, you know, that you provided for them by being a hunter. We'll just say it that way. Mm-hmm. That was, mm-hmm. that was, that, that's awesome. So yeah, you got the, uh, muskox back. You've sent me some pictures. I, if you wouldn't mind after we're done recording this, Alex, I'd just love to see it again. So if you could send me a picture of the, the muskox, I'd love to see it and, now that I know a little bit more about it and and uh, uh, what they're what they're like and so forth, I think it'll be more interesting to look at it now. But yeah, what an amazing amazing adventure! And uh, I give you a lot of credit for having the guts to do it. Um, you know, it's not just the factor of being uncomfortable, but doing that by yourself, so so far from home and what you know and what you're comfortable with. I mean, that's that's a huge step outside your comfort zone to go chase a once in a lifetime, once in five lifetime, uh, adventures. So it's awesome, right, man. Right. Well, thank you. Yeah, for it was, sure. It was, it was a good accomplishment. If you had one inspirational thing to say to everybody in relation to that, uh, what would you like? What would, what would be your, your word of encouragement or inspiration? In, in regards to the hunt or the yeah like, just like doing something like that you know like oh uh, yeah i mean just just go for it i mean like you know it's we all have dreams mm-hmm. but 
you know, if, if you put pen to paper, I mean, the, the dreams can become reality, whether it's, you know, I dream of hunting that animal, but I don't think I'll ever draw the tag or I don't think I ever can afford it or, you know, whatever your context is there. Like if, if you, if you really want to do something, you will be able to do it, you know? And yeah. for me, it was, you know, whether it was that year or 20 years down the road, like I was going to do it at some point if I was still alive yeah. and you know, nothing, nothing's going to stop me. And, you know, I figured out a way to, you know, do it financially and to get a, get a tag or license or whatever they call them metal locking tags with the licenses there. But you know, whatever the case is, like my inspirational deal is like, go after it and, and do it because you're going to, you only live once and those memories you're, you're going to have for the rest of your life, you know? Yeah. And it's yep. the reality is to me, the trophy is if I mount an animal or I have a, a Euro mount or whatever the case is, like I look back at that and I have the story in my brain forever. I know every detail about that animal and that's, that's the true adventure of it. And that's the true like honor to that animal for mm -hmm. taking its life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Very well said. My two cents. Very well said. You know, you, you only get, you only get that one point in your life where you have the health and the, the youthfulness and capability to do it. You gotta go, you gotta jump in whatever that dream is for you. It might be something as simple as, you know, maybe you've hunted whitetails in one spot your whole life and you really want to go hunt whitetails in another spot, do it. Or maybe it's something as mm -hmm. big as going and chasing after muskox on the top of the world. Um, then, then, uh, you need to do that too. <laughs> you know, like yeah. what, whatever it is that, that you really just, want to see happen you got to chase after it i think so many people talk about wanting to do something and they just never do it you know what i mean and and not just in mm -hmm. hunting either all of life you know um yep i know plenty many, of those folks yeah how many people tell you how much <laughs> they hate their job every single day and how much they wish they could do a different thing and, and maybe even a specific job and they won't go get it or how how many people uh you know, tell you that, man, one of these days I'm really going to, I'm really going to go and do this. And they just never like that day just never comes because th they're so concerned about, you know, the next mundane task that there, those mundane tasks are always going to be there. People, <laughs> you know, these yeah, kinds of opportunities, yep. These kinds of opportunities, they come and then they go and then they're gone. So if you got you got a dream you want to see happen, make it happen, which is a good opportunity here uh, uh, to talk about our sponsors. First of all, uh, our presenting sponsor, Spartan Forge, Bill Thompson would represent that very well. There was a guy who wanted to see something happen, so he went and made it happen. That is Spartan Forge. He dreamed it up, used his experience as military intelligence, and uh, he did a whole career of that, just retired a year and a half ago, I think, from that. And uh, he took his skill set and his knowledge base and uh, put it all together, what he knew about whitetails, put it all together 
into this one incredibly powerful service, which is Spartan Forge. It's a map-based app, but it has a whole bunch of other goodies on it. Um, you may have seen in my uh, social media story recently, I shared one of their videos kind of teasing some of the new stuff they have coming out. One of those things that um, is going to be rolling out here soon with updates is the LiDAR um, layer in the mapping, which is insane. Like that's how you see where game trails are <laughs> when you're looking at mm-hmm. when you're looking at the planet. You know how handy is that, and just getting an idea of what kind of terrain you're going to be uh, hunting and all all that. But also, you know, you have the deer behavior prediction, which is kind of the bread and butter that was, uh, uh, you know, really the first thing that Bill rolled out with it. The product just evolved so much since then. But you can get all the mapping for free, and then if you want you know, the additional bells and whistles, which you definitely do want those. Believe me, I am a, I use Spartan Forge all the time and I love those additional features. That's what you'll pay a subscription for and you'll want to do that for sure. So again, a big thank you to Spartan Forge for being the presenting sponsor of this podcast. And then, um, a, one of my, you know, probably the longest sponsor, of this podcast is Alex himself through his company East to West Hunts. You saw how detailed Alex had to be for planning his uh, hunt to go get after a muskox in Alaska. He's going to apply that same level of detail to your own dream hunt. And yes, like we were just talking about, you got that dream hunt. Now is the time to work towards getting it done. Um, things come and they go. If you don't do it, you won't do it. And Alex will help you through every step of that complicated process. And uh, he's, as you can tell, he's a guy who's been there, done that. So he's an excellent resource for just consultation as far as getting ready for the hunt, getting the gear for the hunt. He'll tell you what to buy. He'll tell you, he'll even rent you some of the stuff if you don't want to buy it so you can save some money. Um, And uh, then he'll, help you out with all the mapping and navigation aspect of your hunt by sending you waypoints of areas where you should consider setting up to glass or maybe filling your canteen or maybe going in for a, a camping site or whatever. Uh, Alex takes care of you from top to bottom. He'll help you with all that booking stuff that he did with those flights, help you with finding a place to stay. Alex offers all of that. He'll even apply for your tags for you or buy you your points. Um, He does it all. Okay, so go over to eastwesthunts.com. I have benefited from Alex's hunt planning services, and I couldn't believe in Alex more than I do. It's just not possible. Like I just knew I was taken care of. Uh, because Alex did my my hunt plan for me. And it was a big hunt. It was a detailed hunt. It was far from home. And uh, I knew that I was in good hands, though, with Alex. So uh, do the same. Go to eastwesthunts.com. Use the promo code FIRSTGEN10 at checkout. Save yourself 10% off of that service, whatever it is, and uh, use that money for whatever else that needs to go uh, into your hunt. You know, buying food, uh, paying for a hotel, paying for a taxi, paying for flights, whatever. Save yourself a little bit of money with that promo code FIRSTGEN10. And, uh, yeah, use it for those things. But, Alex, buddy, thank you so much for coming on tonight, inspiring us, making us feel like the uh, unimaginable is not only imaginable, but it is doable. And, uh, you know, it's just a good challenge to hear from you 
uh, telling that story. And uh, thank you, of course, for all your support of the podcast through the years. Um, you're a great friend. And uh, thank you, you listeners. You're all great friends in your own way. Um, please reach out if you haven't. Just heard from a podcast listener this last week. It's great hearing from him. Um, if you haven't yet, hey, just give me a what's up, you know, and uh, let me know where you're listening from. Let me know your hunting story. I love hearing all that stuff. It's, it's truly the best part. So uh, please do that. And if you haven't yet left a five-star review, please do. That helps get this podcast out to more people. It helps get uh, the First Gen Hunter podcast featured on Apple Podcasts. Wouldn't that be cool to see a hunting podcast be one of the featured podcasts uh, rolled out? Well, you can make that happen by just raining down the five-star uh, reviews. And the same goes for Spotify as well. Um, just uh, really appreciate those of you that have done that already. And I ask if you haven't yet, please do so. It's very helpful to me and uh, to the podcast. So thank you so much, everyone. And until next time, take care and take someone hunting.